Well, we are going back into our series through the book of Revelation. So if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to Revelation chapter 17, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at the whole uh, chapter today. And I'll ask, as is our custom, out of respect for the Word of God, that if you're able to do so, that you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Give ear to God's Holy Word. John writes, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, uh, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs, of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast, because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, uh, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction." And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful." And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they are the beast, uh, they and the beast rather, will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind uh, and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God Are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. The same as the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. Amen. Well, we're up to chapter 17 in Revelation, which we just read. And if you uh, are paying attention to the book, you'll notice we only have five more chapters to go. It feels like we just started this series a couple months ago, but we only have five more chapters after today. Till the end of the book, and uh, this this section uh, is kind of hard to divide up. You know, when the book was first written, when all the books of the Bible were first written, they didn't have chapter divisions and you know verse divisions and whatnot. Um, and chapter seventeen is part of a larger section in, in this part of the book, 
that deals with mainly with God's judgment and wrath upon Babylon. Babylon, the wrath of God upon Babylon was actually introduced back in chapter 14, verse 8, where we read a while back. It says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So we've seen the same kind of thing brought up already, you know, chapters ago, and it's still going on into this part of the book. And the theme of God's just judgment, his wrath upon Babylon, actually keeps going all the way through the first part of chapter 19. So, you know, you and I may have trouble understanding, you know, what is all this talk about Babylon and this woman, and why is this the imagery God has chosen to use to reveal these things to us? Uh, But whatever the case, it must be awfully important for it to spend, you know, the better part of how many chapters dealing with this particular thing. You know, if you read... Uh, coincidentally, if you have time or make time this afternoon, if you were to look and read the book of Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah is, is during, is written during the Babylonian captivity of, of Judah, and the last few chapters are all about the fall of Babylon, and they're, they're the longest chapters in the book. And if you and I were writing these things, we might tend to think, well, I'll just write it in a couple verses, you know, God judged uh, wicked Babylon and so on, but for for God's purposes, for whatever reason, He's made these chapters, you know, rather long and and more than one chapter about the same subject, and it must be in some way for the comfort of God's people uh, to see these things drawn out in such a way. And so, th- this even if we have trouble understanding why it's written the way it is, this must be awfully important for us to understand for it to be written uh, in so many uh, so many chapters and so many verses long. Now, in his book on Revelation, I've mentioned it more than once. Uh, William Hendrickson has a book. If you've never, if you have trouble understanding Revelation, it's a book I would highly recommend that you read. It's called More Than Conquerors. It's not very long, and he kind of gives you the overview of the book, chapter by by chapter. And he writes this about these chapters at the end of the book. He says, broadly speaking, this section may be may be subdivided as follows: Chapter 17, what we're looking at today. Chapter 17 describes the nature and tells of the history of the great harlot Babylon. Chapter 18 shows us the inevitable, complete, and irrevocable character of Babylon's fall. Chapter 19 introduces us to the rejoicings in heaven because of the complete overthrow of Babylon and because of the wedding of the Lamb. It also presents the author of the victory, the rider upon the white horse who triumphs over Babylon, the beast and the false prophet, and executes final judgment on all his enemies. So he's giving us kind of an overview of of these three chapters, 17, 18, and 19. That's about as good of a thumbnail sketch of these chapters as you could probably find. And again, notice he, he mentioned something that needs to be brought up again and again. What's the result in chapter 19? The rejoicing of God's people. These These things are written to comfort you. And to comfort us as believers. We may not understand all the details, but they're not written to frighten you. They're written to comfort you and comfort especially the suffering and persecuted church. Now, what, what is Babylon? Why, why does it use that imagery? What is the beast? You know, many, many different answers have been suggested by commentators down through the years. And, uh, so I'm not going to promise to solve all these riddles for you this morning. I won't promise, so don't get your expectations too high that you're going to go home and say, oh, I know what every single one of these details means. 
nobody before me who's much better than me has come close, so I won't begin to give you the expectation that I'm going to do that this morning, especially just in one sermon. So sorry to disappoint, but there's still a lot that we can get out of this chapter. Uh, maybe a more important question for us is how does this chapter apply to us today? How does the whole book of Revelation apply to us as believers today? 2,000 years after this book was written almost, and this book was given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for a purpose, and it was meant to comfort and encourage God's people in the first century, and it's also written to comfort and encourage God's people today and until Christ returns in our battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what we want to make sure that we're looking at is not just, we don't want to look at this chapter with just curiosity as if it were some kind of trivial pursuit game. I just want to know the code and be able to figure out what all these things mean because I'm curious and want to be able to feel smart. We want to know how this applies to us as believers. And there, there are, those are some of the questions we hope to look at this morning, Lord willing. Uh, the outline we're going to look at and use this morning is going to follow basically the outline that's apparent, at least to me, in the text. And we're going to look at three things, hopefully. And first thing is the mystery of Babylon revealed. In verses 1 through 6, secondly, the mystery of Babylon explained. Remember, the angel said, I will, I will show you the mystery of Babylon explained in verses 7 through 18. And then last but not least, the mystery of Babylon applied. What's the, what are the lessons that you and I need to learn from this chapter and the chapters that follow? How, how should it affect how we live and serve God in our generation? So the first thing we're going to look at in our text is the vision that, that John was shown in which the mystery of Babylon was revealed. Look at verses 1 and 2, where the angel tells him, and also through through him tells us, what this vision is all about. Verses 1 and 2 tell us, here's what this whole vision, with all these weird details, is mainly about. Verses 1 and 2, it says, Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you what? The judgment of the great prostitute. That is the theme of the chapter. The judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Now one of the main things that, I know I bring this up from time to time, but it's not without reason. One of the main things we have to remember as we go through this book, as any book that's written in this way, apocalyptic literature, is that um, this great final book of Scripture is given to us mostly in the form of a series of visions. A series of, of visions. And what that means is, in Revelation, in this, this last book of the Bible, uh, these visions, they teach literal truths symbolically. They teach literal truths in a symbolic fashion. And if we get that wrong, it's going to cause all kinds of weird, strange things to be understood of the text that were never intended for us to understand from this text. And and where do I get that from, besides just the way it's given? In the very first verse of the book, Revelation 1, verse 1, I'm going to read the King James uh, translation of verse 1 of the book. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the title of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly to come to pass. And here it is. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. It's given in the form of signs. 
Revelation is not a videotape. I know nobody uses videotapes. Revelation is not a video of the future shown to John on a big screen and John saying, I don't know what that is, so I'm going to call it a dragon. I don't know what this is. I'm going to call it, you know, uh, that's not what this is. John knows and it tells us in the book that what he is being given is a series of visions that teach things through symbolism. Symbolism. And that's clearly apparent in chapter 17, right? None of us actually think that in the end times, some giant monster with seven heads and ten horns is going to have a woman riding on it, and God's going to destroy this woman. And it's, it's a symbol. It's meant to teach us about something else through those signs and symbols. So those visions throughout the book are symbols and signs that represent something else, and we are to try to understand what that something else is by means of looking at these visions. The symbols themselves are not to be taken literally, but the literal truths that these symbols teach are. And that's the difference. And so in verse 1 of our text in chapter 17, when the angel tells John that he's going to show him something about, quote, the judgment of the great prostitute, we have to know, and I'm sure when I read it you were you knew this in, intuitively, that he does not have a literal prostitute in mind. He probably does not have a literal person, an individual uh, in mind. It's, it's not about that at all. In fact, the sin of this great prostitute is probably not sexual in nature at all. You know, when he calls, when he calls her the great prostitute, he's saying the worst of the worst. That's, that's kind of what he has in mind here. Now, in, in scripture throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, very often, uh, idolatry and even harlotry are used as symbols for apostasy and idolatry. It's a very common use. In other words, covenant unfaithfulness to God is compared to adultery and sexual immorality, even to harlotry. Uh, For example, one of the most famous Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, a book I trust you have read and will keep on reading with much uh, great edification. Isaiah 1, verse 1, the first verse of the whole book of Isaiah, we're told that Isaiah was given a vision, kind of like John was, concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. So the vision of John, which has a lot of imagery as well, or the vision of Isaiah, rather, what's it all about? It's about Jerusalem and Judah in the days of those kings of Judah that he lists there in verse 1. And what does the Lord say of Jerusalem in particular later on in chapter 1 of Isaiah's prophecy? In Isaiah 121, this is what Isaiah writes. How the faithful city has become a whore or an adulteress, depending on your translation. He calls Jerusalem, you know, Jerusalem is the capital of Judea, the southern kingdom. Where was the temple? In Jerusalem. Where was the, where was the, the palace? In Jerusalem. It's the main place of, of God's people there. And it says, how the faithful city, that's Jerusalem, has become a whore. She who was full of justice, Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. They had turned their backs on God. They had turned to idolatry and false religion, probably in a syncretistic way, kind of compromising with the false religions around them. And, and what did God compare that to? Harlotry and adultery. It's, it's, not, it's not an uncommon thing in Scripture. If you read sometime Ezekiel chapter 16, the very same analogy is used throughout the chapter in some pretty harsh language. If you read it, it's it's not rated G. It's very difficult to read in some ways. 
The book of Hosea, you might remember the book of Hosea, one of the prophets. Uh, remember, God gave Hosea kind of a strange, a strange way to make his will known or his word known. He made Hosea, his life, a life lesson for Israel. In Hosea 1 verse 2, he tells him something he would never tell. We would never dream of God telling him to do. But he says, go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. He's going to make, he wanted Hosea to make his own marriage, if you can imagine this. A picture, a living, walking, breathing picture of what Israel was doing uh, against their own God. They had forsaken the Lord. They had turned aside to idols and even false gods. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, And so the Lord, God, compares his own people to an adulterous and a harlot. And so here in in Revelation, the angel carries John away in the spirit in the wilderness. In verse 3 in Revelation 17, where he's shown a vision of a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and ten horns. And in verse 5, he tells us the woman's name. It's almost like he makes us wait to kind of build the suspense. He says, on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Now, what does that mean? He means that this, this name he's about to give, there's significance to it that isn't necessarily apparent on the surface. You have to think about it. A name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Now, the great prostitute of verse 1 is now called Babylon the Great here in verse 5. Now, we know, was Babylon still in existence in the first century? No. Babylon, years and years, you know, centuries before that, was the most powerful nation on earth. They carried the the people of Judah off into captivity. They destroyed the temple uh, back in those hundreds of years before John wrote this book. But Babylon was also judged and destroyed. Babylon is where modern-day Iraq is. Now, Iraq is still a modern nation, they still exist, but they are in no way the most powerful nation on earth as they once were. They are, even now, no longer the number one you know, threat to God's people as they once were way back in the day. So we know that when it says Babylon the Great and says it's a mystery, it's, he's not referring to the actual Babylon. This is not a prophecy of earthly Babylon's resurgence. That is not what this is about. Now, just as God referred to Jerusalem in Isaiah's day, in Isaiah 1.10, he refers to Jerusalem as Sodom and Gomorrah. Specifically, he calls the rulers in Jerusalem, you rulers of Sodom, you rulers of Gomorrah. Imagine what an insult that would have been. Imagine how hard that would have been to read and hear from the, the mouth of the prophet Isaiah. But what, what the point is, now, did Sodom and Gomorrah still exist in Isaiah's day? They were burned with fire back in Genesis. They were long gone, but their names were a byword. Their names were, were, you know, had significance to them. And so to call Jerusalem and its rulers Sodom and Gomorrah is to, it's a warning. It's like you are like that. Would have been an awful thing for them uh, to hear, but it was true and they needed to hear it in Isaiah's day. So in the same way that the people of Jerusalem in Isaiah's day were rebuked, by the use of those old names for their idolatry and wickedness, even so the Babylon in John's day, we think it referred to an earthly city or nation that had become famous or infamous for its idolatry and wickedness in the eyes of God. And it's not just something about John's day either. It's both and. You know, very often commentators and scholars, we get kind of wrapped around the axle about 
This is all the first century. This is all past, or it's all future. It's both. This had an application very directly in John's day. Remember, it's, the whole book is about things that were soon to come to pass, or at least a lot of it was about things that were soon to come to pass in John's day, but it's also instructive for us about things that are yet to come in the future. And so um, when we read these things, we, we don't want to assign them to one particular place or city or people in such a way that we say, this was just them, it doesn't apply to us. That's not the case. There are definitely lessons for us to learn as well. Now, the last thing John tells us about this woman in verse 6 is that he saw the woman, quote, drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. That is the biggest clue in the chapter, or one of the biggest clues in the chapter about who he's talking about, about what, what city, what people he was talking about and seeing this vision about. She is a city or a nation that was known for its violent persecution of God's people in the church. That is the, the main thing. And so we go from the, the mystery of Babylon revealed in the vision to the mystery of Babylon explained in verses 8 through verse 18, the end of the chapter. That's the second point, the mystery of Babylon explained. In the first six verses of the vision, uh, it's revealed to John, these things about Babylon in the last verses of the chapter, verses 7 through 18, really. The meaning of that vision is explained to John as well. Remember in verse 6, what was John's reaction to that vision? You know, John didn't just sit there and go, oh, that's interesting. Wow, that's okay. Great, that's neat. There's a weird-looking woman on a, on a beast with, with seven heads. It says he marveled greatly. A, a more literal way of putting that was he, he was amazed with a great amazement. He was shocked. He was stunned by the vision he saw. He's, you know, if you saw it, if you and I saw the same vision with our own eyes, we would have been dumbstruck. And John was no different in that way than us. When he saw this vision of Babylon, this woman on the beast, he was shocked by what he saw. He couldn't believe his eyes. And what does the angel say in verse 7? Why do you marvel? Why are you amazed and shocked? I will tell you the mystery of the woman. What is he saying? I'm going to explain it to you. You know, settle down. I'm going to explain what this means to you. Um, he's going to explain it uh, to him. And he says things. Uh, he says, I'm, I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. And notice how often he says things throughout the chapter, throughout these verses. Uh, like, for instance, in verse 8, he says, the beast that you saw is such and such. Verse 15, the waters that you saw are such and such. Verse 16, the ten horns that you saw. He, he's telling him, you saw this, here's what it means. You saw this, here's what that means. Finally, verse 18, the woman that you saw, he explains, maybe not in as much detail as you and I might like. We'd like it to be a little bit more clear and blunt. Uh, but he tells them in some ways what those things were meant to, to teach and indicate. Now, the angel says uh, that the beast that John saw, verse 8, was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And he said that because of that, the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. Notice how time from time to time in Revelation, in this vision that John has given, things like this come up. Things like God's election of his people, that the people he has saved, uh, how, how secure is their salvation? How secure is your salvation if you're a Christian, that's half the point. It's so secure because your name, if you're a believer in Christ, was written in the book of life when? 
from the foundation of the world. What, what, what makes you, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Christ this morning, what makes you, what separates you from an unbeliever who never repents and turns to Christ? Grace. God's electing grace. Nothing, in other words, nothing in you, nothing inherently about you makes you fit for salvation more than somebody else. And God says, you know, what do you have that you have not received? If you're a Christian, it's all by God's grace and sovereign mercy upon you in Christ. And because of that, your salvation is secure. And so he, he talks about the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life. They're the ones who are going to see the fulfillment of what this vision represents and be shocked and amazed. Verse 8 is teaching us that unbelievers, those whose names have not been written in the book of life, will be utterly shocked and dismayed at what's going to take place. And then John says, this calls for a mind with wisdom. In other words, even for Christians, this is going to be difficult to understand and apply correctly. Now we're told that the seven heads, verse 9, are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. And that those seven mountains are seven kings. Now this, you know, it's almost like he substitutes one image for another. You know, if, if I were standing there next to John, which I'm not, I would have been like, no, that's not helpful. You know, just tell us what it is. You know, that's not what he does. He says those seven mountains are seven kings. Um, he kind of piles symbols upon one another. Uh, many commentators believe that the seven mountains reference is a reference to Rome. The city of Rome is said to have been founded on or around seven mountains or hills. So, again, seven is a very, very important number in Revelation, so it may be more than that, but it probably is not less than that. Now, many attempts, if you read some books on Revelation, if you've ever done that, you'll know that many different attempts have been made to, to identify these seven kings as seven particular emperors of Rome. Uh, the ones that I have read, and I have read quite a few of them, none of these formulations to me anyway, is very convincing. They all have to kind of, uh, you know, they have to arrive at the number seven in kind of strange ways, you know, leaving out this one, leaving out that that emperor. This guy wasn't in power that long, so he doesn't count. Uh, and it also depends, you know, where you're putting the book of Revelation. Are you saying it was written, as some do, earlier in the middle, so, you know, middle to the late end of the first century? Or was it written almost at the very end of the century, because wherever you put, it, put the book historically is going to affect how you view and who you view these things as. And so I think maybe the, the, the best way to look at it is just to remember uh, that the number seven is very significant in Revelation. In particular, it's the number of completion or perfectness, per, perfection, completeness rather. And so I think maybe the number seven here, these seven kings, is not meant for us to try to guess who these kings are. I think maybe it's just meant to indicate the totality, the totality rather, or completeness of their number. The empire as a whole, not just individual emperors. So all of Rome's rulers and power, I think, are at least as much as that in view here in this vision. He then tells us the ten horns are ten kings, verse 12, ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings, for one hour, you know, for a short duration, together with the beast, they're with one mind going to do what? Verse 13, they're going to hand over their power and authority to the beast. They're going to take power, they're going to give their power up 
for a goal. Now, verse 14, verse 14 is the key verse to the whole chapter. And in some ways, verse 14, according to some, is the key verse to the entire book of Revelation. If that gets your attention. William Hendrickson, uh, you keep hearing me quote that name with good reason. He goes so far as to say, quote, that the theme of this book is stated most gloriously and completely here in verse 14. The theme of the entire book is in verse 14. And what does it say there? John writes, they, that's the beast, these kings and all that, they will make war on the lamb. And what will the lamb do? And the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. If you get nothing else out of this chapter, and I hope you get more than this out of the chapter, but if you leave here this morning and you still say, I still have no idea who the beast is. I have no idea who the who, who Babylon is or what Babylon is supposed to be. I don't get half of this stuff. Hang your hat on verse 14. All of the enemies of Christ in his church, all those who try to make war on the Lamb, and how do they make war on the Lamb? They make war on the church. They make war on the people of God. That's you, that's me, that's the church all throughout the world, all throughout history. They make war on the Lamb, and what does the Lamb do? The Lamb conquers them. They cannot defeat him. And Elsa says, what else there? Those with him, who's that? That's you, brethren and sisters. Like, that's, that's the church. Those with him are called and chosen and faithful by God's grace. That's the army of Christ. That's you. That's the church. Those with him share in his victory over them. All these together make war on the Lamb. What does it remind you of? It reminds me of of Psalm 2. Psalm 2, where it says that the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain, and the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Where it says his anointed, that's that's Hebrew for Messiah. The Greek in the New Testament would translate that as the Christ. The rulers of this world, are, are they gather together to make war, to set themselves against the Lord, Yahweh, and against his Christ, Jesus Christ, his son. And so all the unbelieving world, the kings and rulers who hate God and hate Christ and foolishly try to wage war against them, and what happens? The one, it says in Psalm 2, verse 4, the one who sits in the heavens laughs. And when it says he sits in the heavens, what's, what's it saying? He's talking about him being enthroned. It's not just about his posture. It's about he is enthroned in the heavens, far greater than anything on the earth. And when they try to wage war against him, what does he do? He laughs. He holds them in derision, it says. No matter what the wicked rulers and religious false religious leaders seek to do together, to persecute the people of God and in the church, Christ will defend us. That's the message of this chapter and of the book. Christ is even now gathering and defending his church and is conquering his enemies through his church and through his word. And why is that? It says right in verse 14, he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. Back in the first chapter of the book in verse 5 of chapter 1, Jesus Christ is called the ruler of kings on earth. Not in the future, not just when he comes back. Jesus is the, the King of Kings when? Now. He is ruling over all things 
now. He is sovereignly ruling over even the most powerful people on earth, the people that we might be tempted to look at and be afraid of as, oh, this person could cause great harm. This person is seeking to damage the church. He rules over them, and he will judge them in his time. Not only that, but again, verse 14 also adds, those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Brothers and sisters, that's you, that's us. If you're in Christ by faith, that includes you. You conquer in Christ, and so because you conquer in Christ, our victory is certain. There is no chance of defeat. As Paul says in Romans 8.37, we are what? More than conquerors through him who loved us. And why is love the past tense there? You ever read that passage and wonder what that's about? Christ loves us now. He's not saying Christ used to love us. He's saying Christ died for you on the cross. He loved you so much he died on the cross to pay for your sins if you're a believer. That's, that's what he means in the past tense there, that we conquer through him who loved us. And so this chapter and the whole book in general, the, the message here is the world will not get the last laugh. Wicked rulers and nations will not get the last word. He who sits in the heavens will laugh. He who sits in the heavens will get the last word. The wicked are going to continue to wage war against the Lord Jesus Christ and his church in this life. And how do they do it again? They wage war on the church in some way or another. The enemies of the cross of Christ will seek all they can do to destroy the church and blot out the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what does Jesus promise in Matthew 16, 18? He will build his church. And what happens? And the gates of hell shall what? Shall not prevail against it. You and I, in some human sense, we could say we're helping build the church. But because Christ is building his church, he uses people, he uses the preaching of his word, his church will be built. When he tells us, go make disciples of all the nations, I can't do that, you can't do that, none of us on our own steam can do that. But what does he say? I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And all authority in heaven and on earth has been given him, therefore what's going to happen? Through us, messed up, you know, imperfect, to say the least, believers preaching the gospel, disciples are going to be made. His church is going to be built because Jesus is the one doing it. And also, even in this life, the Lord Jesus Christ judges wicked people, wicked rulers, and even wicked nations. Not just once at the end of the age, when Christ returns, that he will do it then. He judges such even now. Think about King Herod in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 12. Remember, he struck one of the apostles with the sword. He took Peter, the apostle Peter, the big fish, the biggest fish, so to speak. And what was he going to do? He was going to make a show of it because it pleased the unbelieving Jews in the city. It, it was all about politics. You know, some things never change. It's always about politics and power and money. It still is, and it always was back then. He was trying to put on a show, a show of his own glory. And he gave a speech. Remember the story in Acts 12? He gave a speech. He had this, you know, this silvery-looking robe on. He looked, you know, it was quite the show for the crowd. And they said, the voice of a god and not a man you're such a good speaker, Herod, now give us the food we need. You know, It was all to get what they needed. And what happened? It says God struck him down, and he was eaten with worms and died. Why? Because he did not give glory to God. He took the glory that only belonged to God. He had already killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And the Lord Jesus Christ finally had enough. And he didn't just die. It wasn't a coincidence. The Lord struck him, it says. 
and killed him. He still does that now. He still defends his church. Maybe it's not in the time that we would prefer it. His wisdom is and timing is better than ours. Look what John tells us about the fate of the great prostitute Babylon in verses 16 to the end of the chapter. John says, And the ten horns that you saw, and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked. Remember, she had this fancy clothes and jewelry on, the golden cup. All of a sudden, that's all going to change. Uh, and they, they will devour her flesh. It sounds like, uh, remember, Jezebel in the Old Testament? She was eaten by dogs. That was her. It's the same picture. Remember, all the Old Testament imagery keeps being brought into to Revelation uh, to, as a hint, I think. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out whose purpose? His purpose. Sometimes the Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes God, uses other wicked men, other wicked people and, and, and nations to judge other ones. And to the unbelieving mind, we'd say, oh, it's just a coincidence. This person did this to this person. He uses even their own wickedness for his own purposes. He put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. His word will be fulfilled even in these things. And it says, and the woman, verse 18, that you saw, here it is, is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. That woman who once rode high on the power of the beast would soon be devoured and destroyed by that very same beast. Now, that beast in John's day was almost certainly Rome. That doesn't mean Rome is the only fulfillment of this this uh, imagery. But the beast in John's day was almost certainly Rome. And no doubt for a time, unbelieving Israel enjoyed status and protection under Roman rule. I think that's the picture going on here. You know, I've read some commentators that they identify the beast as Rome, which I think is right, and they identify the woman as Rome. And I'm, I read it and I say, well, wait, so Rome destroys Rome. I don't think that's quite what, what is being said here. And I think that's what's being said here is Rome uh, is the beast and unbelieving Israel is the woman in, in the picture here. She, think about the New Testament. Think about the book of, of Acts. Who instigated the persecution of the church at the hands of the Roman authorities in the book of Acts. It was the unbelieving Jews, not Jews in general, the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem that were opposing the gospel, the religious leaders, most of them. They instigated the Romans against them. Much of the violent persecution you read of in the book of Acts, including the murder of their own countrymen, uh, who were believers, uh, had, had come at the hands of unbelieving Israel. Who, who chased Paul from city to city and stirred up persecution and riots against him. It was them. Revelation 18, verse 24, the very next chapter. This is what it says about Babylon. In her was found the blood of prophets and saints. In her was found the blood of prophets and saints. Many of the prophets in the Old Testament and the saints in the early days of the New Testament were killed by unbelieving Israel. Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 53, right before he himself was stoned to death uh, by the unbelieving Jewish religious leaders in the city of Jerusalem. Stephen, you might remember him, he gave a very long sermon or speech. And it's kind of a survey of history, of Israel's history. And he says at the end, right before they killed him, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered who you received, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And as if that's not enough, what does Jesus himself say in Matthew 23, 37? He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? This is what's been building up since Jesus was teaching in the, in the Olivet Discourse. And if you know that sermon in the Olivet Discourse in, in Matthew 23 and following, what's the very next thing Jesus talks about after saying that? He talks about the destruction of the temple. He says, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Matthew 24, verse 2. Remember the, the disciples with him were saying, look at these buildings. If, if you were there, if, if we were there, it would have been quite the attraction. Herod's temple is what it was called. It took 46 years to build. I can't think of another building in existence right now that took that long to build that you would get to go see. 46 years, this thing was amazing looking. The disciples weren't wrong to look at it and go, wow. And Jesus tells them, well, you've got to think with a tone of sadness in his voice, you see all these, all these great buildings? Not one stone is going to be left on top of the other. The whole thing is going to be torn down to the ground. And that, that did happen not that many years after Jesus said those words in A.D. 70. What happened? The Roman army came in, raised the city to the ground, and destroyed the earthly temple and did not leave one stone upon another. That's just what Jesus foretold. I think that's what's envisioned here in chapter 17. You have the beast, Rome, turning on the woman and destroying Jerusalem. Now, how do we apply this? Here's, here's the, the sticky part. Here's the part we have to be careful about. What difference should this make to us in our lives all these years and centuries later? The first thing we have to be careful to notice that the Lord's judgment upon Jerusalem in A.D. 70, his destruction of the temple, it does not mean that he is done with his people Israel. It doesn't mean that God washed his hands of, of every Jew. There are some that want to apply it that way. We've seen a synagogue shooting in San Diego months ago by a young man who, who took reform teaching and twisted it in his mind somehow to think that that was an acceptable thing for him to do. That was a wicked thing for him to do. Uh, it does not mean, this chapter does not mean, uh, the destruction of the temple does not mean that, that God is done with Israel his, the Jews, and, that his, and, and it doesn't mean that his way of salvation is closed to them. What does Paul say about the gospel, the power of the gospel in Romans 1.16? Remember, Paul, who was a Jew by birth, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he calls himself, he says that the gospel of Christ is, quote, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then what does he say? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And again, Paul himself was a Jew. The way of salvation is not closed to any group of people, any ethnicity or any nationality. Not only that, but in Romans chapter 11, Paul says that by no means has God rejected his people. Romans 11 verse 1. Again, and what, what, what does Paul give as an example when he says God has not by any means rejected his people Israel? He says, for I himself am a Jew. He's like, you're, you're talking to one. God has saved me, so he obviously is not done. 
And he also says that he has preserved for himself, as he always has, a remnant chosen by grace, verse 5. And he uses the days of Elijah. Remember Elijah? Elijah, you know, he has this battle on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, and then he flees because Jezebel wants him dead. And he goes to God in prayer and says, Oh, Lord, it's just me that's left. I'm the last Mohican. And if I go, the whole thing goes up in smoke. And what did God say? No, you're not the last. I'm paraphrasing. You're not the last one. I have, what does he say? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not just not the only one. There's 7,000 others. You aren't even the last prophet. Why? Because God had reserved. He had kept for himself, protected them, and kept them from apostasy and from death. And then he goes on, Paul does, in Romans 11, uh, verses 11 to 12, he writes this. Now, this has been variously interpreted by many, but just listen to it. So I ask, Paul writes, did they, that's the Jews, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Did they stumble that God might just go, I'm done, no more? By no means, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, so as to make Israel, what? Jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, this says nothing about Israel as a nation. It says nothing about the earthly temple being rebuilt in the last days, which I do not believe the Bible teaches. Those things, why do I say that? Those things had served their purpose. National Israel, not saying anything about today's political Israel, but national Israel at that time, what was its main purpose? What was the main reason that God instituted that that nation? To bring forth the Messiah. He came, that purpose had served, it had served that purpose. Why did God give the temple and the sacrificial system? To point forward to Christ, the Lamb of God and the temple of God. Remember Jesus said, tear down this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. And they were all like, what? And it says, but he was talking about the temple of his body. Jesus is the real temple. He's the true temple where God meets with men and where sacrifice for sin really took place once and for all. And so the temple served its purpose. It's no longer needed because Christ, the Lamb of God, has come. It's why our sacraments are no longer bloody. In the Old Testament, it was circumcision, which involved the shedding of blood. The Passover involved the shedding of blood. What do we have now? There's a corollary between the two, but baptism is now with water. And the Lord's Supper is now with not blood, but wine. That's one of the reasons for that. Their trespass led to the gospel going out to all the nations, the Gentiles. And this was in order, as Paul says, to make Israel jealous so that they might one day turn to Christ by faith. Paul hoped for and prayed for and looked forward to their full inclusion in Christ. And may God bring that to pass by his mercy. So we need to be careful what lessons we don't learn from this chapter. But there are also lessons that we should learn from this chapter. First, we should take heart and rejoice that the Lord Jesus Christ stands ready to defend his church. Now we don't, I don't think anybody in this room has probably really ever experienced violent persecution for your faith. Maybe you have, I know I have not. And I thank God that I have not. I'm not looking, not looking for it. I'm not looking for a fight. Maybe you aren't either. But, but Jesus Christ will hear the, and answer the prayers of his people 
his persecuted church throughout the world. It, it's just like, in, you know, again, I, I say this a lot. Does God change? No. When you read Exodus 2, and at the end it says, God heard their groanings. He heard their prayers, and what did he do? He remembered his covenant, and what's the next thing you see is he, he sends Moses. He, st- he calls him at the burning bush, and he says, here's what you're going to do. And God used Moses to rescue his people, Egypt. It's a picture of salvation. God hears the prayers of his suffering people now. Earlier in the book, the prayers of the martyrs were pictured as being under the, under the altar, and they said, how long, O Lord, until you avenge the blood of your people? And he doesn't say, I'm not going to do that. He says, wait. It's not time yet. There's a time coming, and that's what we're getting to, I think, here in our chapter. But God, the Lord Jesus Christ, even stands ready to defend his church even now. And he does answer those prayers in defending his church by converting some, like the Apostle Paul, for example, and by destroying others, like King Herod in Acts chapter 12. And that should serve as a warning to every wicked nation and ruler on this earth who would seek to harm Christ's bride. He still judges wicked nations and rulers and people in this life. He still, at times, strikes down those who harm his church, the apple of his eye. Places like Nigeria, where Christians are being slaughtered by Muslims, and no one seems to do a thing about it. Places like North Korea and China, that abuse, and who knows what they do to Christians. They, they murder them, they persecute them, they, they persecute the church. They should be worried They should be fearful that one day Christ may have enough. And who knows what means he might use to do it, but he will judge them if they don't repent of that wickedness and harming his church. This vision of the destruction of Babylon also points us forward to the final judgment on the day when Christ our Lord returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. And again, that's to be an encouragement to you. In Revelation 21.4 tells us that when he comes back, And that last day, he will make all things right and, quote, wipe away every tear, and death shall be no more. He'll make all things right for his people. All these bad things that we have to go through in this life will be made up for and done away with. Everything in this book, again, this is something I have to say again and again because I, I forget it too. Everything that we just read, everything in the book of Revelation is meant to comfort you as a believer. It's not meant to frighten you. It's meant to comfort you and encourage you as Christians. These things are meant to cause us to rejoice, even in times of affliction and suffering for the name of Christ. The suffering church, wherever they are in in the world, and whatever time in history they are, they get revelation just fine. They read it and they understand full well what it's about. When we don't suffer, we have more difficulty understanding these things when we're too comfortable. The suffering church gets revelation just just fine. These things are meant to cause us to rejoice in hope, even in times of persecution and suffering. Christ has conquered on our behalf by his death on the cross and his resurrection, and he will conquer all of his enemies and ours, and he'll conquer, and we conquer in him. Again, as Paul says, Romans 8.37, in Christ we are what? More than conquerors through him who loved us. To him be the glory forever.